0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org.
1: We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you didn't bring a hard copy of the text, but you prefer to be in one, we do have Bibles under seats around you, so you can grab one. And if you don't own one at home, you're welcome to take that one as a gift from us. You can have access to scriptures at your own home. So. Um, this morning we're going to be again in Mark chapter four, we're going to read verses one through 20. So if you're able, uh, once you get there, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? Again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Good morning, Providence. Happy 10-year anniversary. Glad that you're here to celebrate with us. My name's and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time with us, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad you're here on this celebration, and we hope you'll join us uh, at Town Center Park afterwards. We're going to have a good time together. Uh, I was told to just make mention, uh, maybe some of you saw, maybe some of you didn't, but on your way in on the left, there's uh something we've been hoping to do which is kind of laying out a few visuals for the potential building and so on your way out uh you can go check that out uh again these are just uh like artistic renderings you know we still got a lot of steps to do here um and so we just wanted to give that to you guys let you kind of take a look at it and uh if it is your first time we just paid off our land so we're excited about it okay that's why we're doing this uh yeah so it's exciting So thinking about, you know, 11 years ago, God called uh, us to plant Providence Community Church. I say 11 because we started gathering as a year, a year and a half after, uh, or at least a year after we actually were already gathering together in homes and and beginning the process. And so um, I thought, okay, well, what should we be doing and how should we celebrate and the best way that I thought to do that was to be what we do every single week, which is just keep on rocking right through Mark, okay, and, uh, and preach the gospel. So that's what we're going to do. I'd love to pray for us. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, thank you. We, we sit here before you, humble and with such gratitude, not just for what you've done in the last 10 years, but for who you are that we get the privilege and the opportunity to submit ourselves to your word, to sing to you, to rejoice in you together. We pray now, give us, as this passage so eloquently states, ears to hear, eyes to see. Not ears that listen but don't hear, not eyes that see but don't perceive, but give us this gift, my God, that our hearts might hear and respond, that we would be the good soil this morning, And we thank you that your gospel word is pure and enough. And that the seed of your gospel produces the 30, the 60, the 100 fold. And so we ask that it would be with us, my God, as we read. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this passage starts with Jesus coming on the heels of some, let's say, accusatory interactions with the scribes and the Pharisees. And for the first time, we get this off of this moment We've seen Jesus with some crowds, but not a crowd like this. What the Bible records is that Jesus is teaching by the sea, and the crowds are so vast, and they're pressing in so heavily that he has to get into the boat, because if not, they'd push him out into the water, you know, and, and basically he might not be able to make it out. So he gets into the boat and begins to preach to them from the boat as they sit by the sea. Now, you've got to put yourselves in the disciples' shoes at this point. They've been in some difficult conversations, but this They must be chomping at the bit. They must be excited. This is the moment for Jesus' coming out party. This is the moment that Jesus is going to reveal himself. They got the big, massive crowds. Jesus has their undivided attention. He's on a boat, you know, and, uh, you know, he's got his pulpit ready. And they got to be excited for Jesus to finally just reveal, I am the son of God. I've come to inaugurate the kingdom the disciples are probably, you know, you got to think Peter was eager enough to grab a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. you got to be thinking, kind of excited here. You know, he's about, to get, he's about to get his fight on with the Romans. And then Jesus does this. He does what we all know that Jesus is going to do because for those of us who have read the Bible, if you expect Jesus to do a thing, he will not do that thing. Jesus stands up and tells an agricultural story and then tells them to go home. He stands up and says, listen to me. The disciples, with bated breath, they wait. Jesus says, there was once a man who sowed seed, and he threw the seed everywhere. Some fell upon the path, some fell upon rocky soil, some fell upon thorns, and some found good soil. It says, the birds of the air ate up the ones that fell along the path. The seed that fell among the rocky soil, yeah, it sprang up a little bit, but it had no root, so when the sun rose, it scorched it. And then some of the fell among thorns, it grew up and then eventually the thorns had their way, choked it out and it died. And the last one that fell among good soil produced a 30, 60 and a hundred fold harvest. Amen. And they probably sing a closing hymn and he sent everyone home. Now you got to imagine the disciples, the Bible tells us what they say. They get Jesus alone and they say, why did you do that? Genuine, they genuinely say, why do you teach in parables? And this is not the only time Jesus is going to say this. In John 14, later in John 16, they tell Jesus, why don't you speak plainly to us and tell us where you're going? Thomas is one of the ones that says this. He says, just give me the map quest to where you're going so I can go there too. And later on in John 16, when Jesus finally says, well, I'm going to ascend into heaven. They go, thank you. You're speaking plainly to us now. We can't follow. Okay. Okay. You see, the disciples don't understand why Jesus speaks in parables because the disciples don't know what Jesus knows. And Jesus knows what the crowds represent. The book of John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus needed no one to testify to him about what was in man because he himself knew what was in man. And so where the disciples saw a great opportunity, Jesus saw the crowds and he saw what was rightly there, a litany of motivations, myriads of reasons for gathering. Tons of reasons why people were sitting down to listen. But it's not like this crowd represented a monolith of eagerness to hear his word preached. The disciples may have seen this, but Jesus did not see it this way. When my wife and I were going through the adoption process with our kids, our second child, uh, I spent about 80 days in Kyrgyzstan with our adoption representative named Jalen. He's a great guy. And so because we spent so much time together, it was two hours from where my uh, living arrangements were to where our daughter was in the orphanage. And so every day or so, as, as often as we could, we'd drive, you know, four hours in the car. So I had a lot of drive time with Jalen. And leaving Bishkek, which was the city, you'd go out to the city of Tokmok, and it's more village-oriented. So you start getting through some villages, and they had a common custom, I would call it. It's probably not a custom at all. It's not a tradition. It's just things that, you know, culture, things that start to Uh, the ways that we respond to things. It's similar to what we call in the States rubbernecking. You know what rubbernecking is? It's when you're driving on one side of the highway and you start, all of a sudden, you get stopped in the middle of traffic. Man, there must be a wreck up ahead. And an hour later, you get up there and there is a wreck up ahead. It's on the other side of the freeway. And all you have is freeway ahead of you. But everyone slows down because they're like, what's going on over there? Wonder who that is, you know? Wonder what's happening. And here's the thing, we all get mad at it and then we also slow down, We're like these are rubberneckers. What is that over there? You know, so their version of rubbernecking is uh, we would get in this caught, caught in this traffic. It would take us hours. We try to, we'd be trying to get to the orphanage, so we'd spend some time with my daughter. And you know, an hour of sitting in this traffic, and, and uh, let's just say that the the traffic laws are a little more lax in Kyrgyzstan. I would say, generally speaking, lanes are more suggested and. Uh, Anyway, we'd finally get to the front, and there'd be about 60 people. It almost looked like, you know, you challenged your buddy to a fight at the ballpark after school. Two people in the middle, and there's 60 people all around, and everybody's kind of yelling, and, you know, and I said, Jalyn, what is this? Like, what's going on? Like, what happened here? He said, oh, they had a car accident. It's like, see, she bumped into him, and I was like, okay, well, who are all these other people? He says, oh, these are all just people that started coming around, checking it out. I said, checking it out? I said, well, why don't they leave? Like it's not a not a huge deal. It's like, oh no, they they just want to see what's going on. And I said, well, don't they just leave it to the police officer and you know? And why why are they doing this? Why don't they just kind of move move on with their day? And he says, well, what else are they gonna do? Said so they just kind of hash out. He says they want to know whose fault it is. So everybody's basically arguing about. Well, I saw this and I saw this and it was her fault. Clearly it's her fault. They're all you see guys going over there and they're smoking their cigarettes, which. A little more common, okay, smoking their cigarettes and they're like pointing out dents and they're pointing out how he if he was coming from this way, there's no way that it could have dented on this side, you know, and everybody's yelling at each other. and I remember thinking like, this is crazy. then some people are just sitting there and they're just smoking their cigarettes, like people watching, just love watching the arguments going on. But what you notice about the crowd is that there's all sorts of different kinds of people, different motivations. The police officers there too, and what's interesting, I don't even get this, probably didn't even matter with the sermon. The police officer talks to everyone, not just to the two people. He's asking this guy, this guy, this person wasn't even here. Let's get your testimony. You know, it just happens this way. Jesus teaches his first lessons to his disciples about ministry, the true work of ministry. And the first thing they need to know is how crowds work. They need to understand the nature of their work when they are going to go out to bring the word. We celebrate 10 years of starting a gathering, but that's why I mentioned 11 years, because it's not really, church planting is not really starting a gathering. That's a milestone point. But a lot of times when we think about church planting, you think about, well, what is it? Is it building more groups like home groups or home Bible studies? Is it creating systems or ministries? Creating outreaches or missions or promoting and advertising? Which, by the way, I've never been good at, never, I've been encouraged to be better at it. Not my gift. I'm not photogenic. And so uh, that's why there's no billboard with my face on it. That's how you turn people away from the gospel. It's a stumbling block. You know, what exactly are church planters? Are they motivational speakers, community organizers, financial speculators, marketing gurus, event coordinators, team builders, crowd gatherers, moving company? Cheap. What are they? Jesus sits his disciples down and says, you're like a sower of seed. That's what you'll be. Now you've got to be thinking like the disciples are thinking, how in the world is this kingdom going to move forward? How is, it, how is the kingdom going to advance with this guy's preaching? And Jesus tells them, through the preaching of the gospel and God's grace being put on display, the disciples need to know, Peter, James, John, people are going to be saved. Guess why? Because God is good. That's it. It's because of God's grace that people are going to be saved. Churches are going to get planted. You know why? Because God's gracious. When we're called to plant a church, we're called to sow the gospel. And we're called to sow the gospel so indiscriminately that a farmer that saw the way we throw around the seed of the gospel would consider us nuts. Because farmers don't plant like that. They plant in the soil that's been cultivated. They're meticulous about where the seeds go. They don't just go around, you know, like the guy that sprays for your mosquitoes, spraying out seeds. They don't go to the target parking lot to plant. We're not merely called to draw a crowd, raise money, build ministry teams, promote events, serve you the community. Guess what? Even to construct buildings, Providence, no. The primary call that every planter must come back to time and again is to be a sower of the gospel. And there's good reason for this. Jesus teaches that it's from the seed of the gospel that every good and perfect fruit comes. That's why we have to come back to it. You see, the power of the gospel has no rival because at its essence, it exalts, it magnifies, it lifts high the triumphant king, the one who is able And so when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's that message that every other thing orbits around, every other good thing the church is able to do orbits around that, like the sun, if you take it away, there is no other good thing. But that's not the only lesson of the parable of the sower. He teaches the disciples a second lesson. This is kind of like interviewing for a job, and after they've talked about the perks, they begin to talk about the downsides, okay? Jesus is going to be very honest. What you'll find with Christ is that he does not mince words with the the negative side effects of following him, let's say. It's not common with our current evangelists. These are not in pamphlets. But Jesus definitely talks openly and honestly about, if you were to follow me, for instance, Here are some of the difficulties. One person, for instance, says, I want to follow you, Jesus. And he says, well, I'm homeless. Do you want to be homeless? And they say, no. He says, okay, well, never mind then. Second lesson is, this ministry, disciples, Peter, James, John, it's going to include a lot of opposition. You need to understand the nature of the vocation that you're employed in. In other words, if Jesus were to be a church planting coach, he would sit down the planter and say, let me tell you how your church plant's going to go, whether you know it or not. Jesus is going to be prophetic here. He'll tell you how ministry will go, whether you know it's going to go this way or not. And he starts with saying, you're going to be preaching and casting out the seed of the gospel and Satan, like a bird, hovers around looking to oppose you. He will find any way to steal that which you are trying to sow. That's pretty harsh, Jesus. Jesus says, yeah, while you're preaching, he will try to figure out a way from the seat to the parking lot, seat to the bathroom, to just pluck that right up. That's what he's going to be doing. Satan will oppose you. There's going to be spiritual opposition to the gospel going forward, like a bird, a scavenger bird. You ever seen a vulture looking on the ground for food? That's what Jesus tells us Satan's like, just looking for a good opportunity. Then he moves on. Then he says, our flesh, our sinful flesh will oppose the word. He says, listen, as, as sure as the sun rises tomorrow, tribulation and persecution will come after you preach the word. And then your sinful flesh and the sinful flesh of every hearer will say, is the juice really worth the squeeze in this whole Christianity thing? Like, my goodness. This is difficult. And then, as though that weren't enough, then he says, the entire world, the system itself, that you live in like thorns unpruned will inevitably wither the plant so the cares of the world unchecked will inevitably choke the word Jesus says there's a siren song of the world and there's lots of enticements and it's going to oppose the gospel going forward now you might be thinking well that's that's pretty intense so what should we do with these challenges going forward And I'll quote the great philosopher and boxer, Mike Tyson, who said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. He was asked when he was about to go fight Evander Holyfield, what do you think about Evander's plans for you? And he said, well, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And I would say, that's wise. If you've ever, whether metaphorically or in reality, fought, you know this is wise. If you've ever been through the fight of your life, let's say, you know this is true. There's nothing wrong with strategies and schemes. In fact, I think that we all strategize in some. It's why we sit down to make budgets, right, for our families. Uh, it's why churches get together. It's why even with our building project, you know, we get together and we do a lot of strategy. Like, what do we want? What do we foresee? These are all really good things. But in the spiritual realm, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to get punched in the mouth. And when it happens, He's giving fair warning. And if you've ever been in a fight, you might have experienced this before. Something happens innately within you when you get a busted lip. You act differently. You swing a little more wildly when somebody really gets under your skin. Jesus is trying to teach us, don't just start swinging. Don't start reacting. And there's a few implicit avoid these that Jesus is offering to, this, to the disciples. Let's start with the first one. We cannot attain fruitfulness by simply changing the seed. In other words, Jesus says, avoid diluting the message. Don't look at unfruitfulness in your eyes and think it must be the seed's fault. That's not true. That's a grave error. The word of God is perfect. Any man-made edits to make the seed of the gospel more apt to take in different soil is an error of the worst kind. When we try to adjust the gospel to make it more palatable to the hearer, you know, let's get to the tough stuff later maybe, what we're really doing is robbing them of any potential opportunity to go from death to life, because only the gospel saves. And the moment that we've added to it or subtracted from it, we've offered some substitute, some counterfeit, you know? This is like, remember the old drink Surge? Y'all know what I'm talking about. If you haven't drank Surge before, maybe I'm I'm dating myself here a little bit, but when they went away with Surge and they tried to bring back a bunch of other options, it's not the same, you know? Because you remember Surge. Surge is the only one that, you know, potentially gave you early onset diabetes. You know, it was unique in this way. When we try to add to, take away, modify the gospel, What's lost is so much greater than what might be gained with earthly eyes. And so because it's 10 years at Providence, I thought there's nothing that I should consider to do more profoundly than perhaps to give Charles Haddon Spurgeon's opinion on some things. So I have three quotes. They're a little bit longer. We can do it. I want to start with this one. Listen to what he says here. Quote, The word of God can take care of itself, and it will do so if we would just preach it and cease defending it. See you, that lion. They have caged him for his preservation. They shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart, open the door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all of its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. No, the seed's never the issue, okay? Jesus says this is how it's going to be there will be times where you think that perhaps it was me and some are going to reject the gospel. That's what he says. He says, but don't mistake that for the gospel being ineffectual. He says, oh no, let the lion out of the cage. Preach the gospel everywhere you go and don't change the seed because then you've traded a lion for a weasel. And weasels are fun to cuddle with, but they can't do much when it comes to killing and friends we need our enemies killed we need sin death hell the grave to go number two we cannot attain fruitfulness by choosing soil or in other words we must avoid discriminating between our hearers the plans of God are perfect Any man-made attempt to discern what kind of person might be more receptive to the gospel over and against another is an error. The moment that we start thinking that we have the discernment to know who's close to receiving Christ and who's way too far away from receiving Christ, we've lost our minds. In church planting talk, this is curating church demographics. That's what it's called. it's folly. To come back to Mr. Spurgeon, he says this, some of our brethren who are very anxious to carry out the decrees of God instead of believing that God can carry them out himself always try to make distinctions in their preaching, giving one gospel to one set of sinners and another to a different class. They are very unlike the old sowers, Who, when they went out to sow, they sowed among the thorns, the stony places, and by the wayside, but these brethren, with profounder wisdom, endeavour to find out which is good ground, and then they will insist upon it, that not so much as a single handful of invitations may be cast anywhere but on that prepared soil. They are much too wise to preach the gospel in Ezekiel's fashion, to the dry bones in the valley while they are yet dead. No, they withhold any word of the gospel till there's a little quivering of life among the bones, and then they commence operations. They do not think it's their duty to go out into the highways and the hedges and to bid all, as many as they find, to come to the supper. Oh, no, they are too orthodox to obey the master's will. They desire to understand first who were appointed to come to the supper, and then they will invite them. That is to say, they will do what there is no necessity for them to do, close quote. He didn't like this kind of talk. Spurgeon was an old-school preacher in that he actually believed what the Bible said, which is, to whom shall we preach the gospel? To all creation where should the seeds go to everyone who's around you? Not curating this group or that group who might be, I don't know, more receptive to hear the gospel, more refined. They'll receive it, you know. Not the people who would, who are already too far gone, let's say. See, this is a misunderstanding of the way in which Jesus talked about conversion. He didn't say that there were some people who were pretty close and they just needed to get cleaned up and polished and then there were the reprobates who were too far gone. He said, I entered a world full of dead and I just so happened to bring to life. He said, I entered a world full of bones and I just so happened to be the real Ezekiel that I speak to those bones and I say, live. Jesus didn't say, I came to a world, half were pretty good and the other half weren't. I'm gonna go to the half that are pretty good. I'm gonna work them up and then the rest I'm gonna let go. No, he said, I came into a graveyard, a cemetery. And I started speaking to the graves. I started speaking to the tombs. There's just dead people. And then Jesus, who's alive. And we come as messengers about the one who's alive. And we preach about him. He's risen, he's risen, he's risen. We go everywhere. And the moment that we start thinking that we could outsmart who is ready to hear it. Outsmart the Lord. We've lost the plot. Number three, we cannot attain fruitfulness by creating enticing environments. Or in other words, Jesus doesn't talk about soil treatment. We can't change the human heart through human effort any more than a man can reverse the rotation of the earth's surface by putting an industrial-sized fan in his front yard. You can't do it. You can't change hearts. Now, I want to say, this is not to be confused with hospitality. At Providence, we do a lot of things to take care of one another. We want to create an environment of charity and care and mutual honor. But I want to make a distinction here. Remember, we do this out of service to God, imitating Christ. We don't have some self-deluded ideas that those kinds of things manufacture heart change. We don't believe that. There's a fine line between removing obstacles and stumbling blocks that are in the way so that people can hear the gospel and then... On the other hand, overly curating environments under the oppression that dead people will come, to, come alive more effectively if we can just fix the lighting. You, know, you think Jesus was worried about the lighting in Lazarus' tomb, for instance? Or how about the sound? It's like, is he gonna hear me? No, he just said, come out. You see, the power of God stands alone. Man-made efforts to strengthen the arm of the one who has no equal. These are errors. This is like you and I Showing up at the strongest man's competition, world's strongest man, and offering a hand when they're on that last boulder. You're just going to get crushed. Just move out of the way. Or as our brother Spurgeon says, and this is my last one, quote, "God is not man that he should fail." nor the son of man that he should suffer defeat. Behold, he toucheth the hills and they tremble. He, t- he toucheth the mountains and they smoke. When he goes forth before his people, he maketh the mountains skip like rams and the little hills like lambs. When they, when, what then can block up his path? The Red Sea thou dividest of of old, O God, and thou didst break the dragon's head in the midst of the many waters, and thou canst still do according to thy will. Let any hinder who may. Oh, beloved, Spurgeon says to his church, if I may but be privileged to lift your hearts and mine to something like a due comprehension of the infinite power of God, we shall then have come to the threshold of a great blessing, quote. I want to read just that last line again. This is my hope for us this morning. If I may be but privileged to lift up your hearts and mind to something like a due comprehension of the infinite power of God we shall then come to the threshold of a great blessing. That's my prayer. If we could come to a due comprehension of the power, the majesty, the strength of God, giving us the gospel, the truth of Christ, that that made Paul jump for joy when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God to salvation. Paul knew this. And Paul had many worldly accolades to proclaim, but he said, no, the gospel is what I boast in. Now, Jesus does highlight a lot of challenges, but what else does he offer? Well, he gives us unfathomable hope. You see, he ends with saying, when you sow the gospel, there will be a harvest. Thirty-fold, sixty-fold hundredfold. That's hyperbole, by the way. There's not a person hearing Jesus' words that, it would have been, that would have been used to thirtyfold, sixtyfold, or hundredfold harvests. Jesus says, when we're faithful to preach the gospel, we will see a bountiful harvest. The gospel will find good soil. The gospel is mighty to save. And we have to look back at all of the challenges that we know that Jesus lines out for us and also see that it's in the gospel itself that we are taught that Jesus has already overcome all of those foes. First, the Bible itself, the gospel itself tells us that Jesus has overcome Satan and all the spiritual authorities that lay claim. He's already won. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13 through 15 tells us, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now these rulers and authorities are not Caesar. These are not Herod. These are spiritual rulers and authorities that Christ has disarmed. And so friends, right now as I preach, Satan and his minions, they they have their way, looking whom they may devour, and yet they are like a serpent with no fangs, a lion with no claws, no poison they can give. They've been completely neutered of their power by the king. And so they may have a way that they can fear you into obeying them by growling loud, but the true lion of Judah has already growled. He's already silenced his foes. And he will come back to do it again finally, where they won't even be flying around anymore, looking for whom they may devour. Secondarily, Jesus won a victory over our sin and over our flesh. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Oh, yes, you're still fighting your sinful flesh, aren't you? But you know what the Bible says? Jesus has already defeated this foe. We have some skirmishes, but these are like skirmishes on the outskirts of a battle that's already been decided. Finally, over all the cares and enticements of the world, Christ has won his victory. John chapter 16, one of my favorite verses I would say in all of scripture, I have said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but watch this, take heart, I've overcome the world. The very system, the air that we breathe, wired against us, Jesus has already overcome. And he invites everyone who will hear, everyone who is weary and heavy laden, come, I'll give you rest from it. I'll give you peace. Today, we not only celebrate Christ's triumph in our church over the last 10 years, and I thank God for it, but we celebrate, and I picture us celebrating with the saints of old, Christ's triumph for 2,000 years and more, and forevermore, over the enemy. That's what we celebrate. The kingdom will advance. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom of our God and his Christ will be forever and ever and ever. And we can be sure of this. I once heard a pastor say a story about his kids, and he said, um, he was talking about playing with his children and his children saying, in the, in the pool, they'd come back to him after he'd throw them in the pool, and they'd say, do it again, daddy, do it again. And then he would do it again. And he was talking about how this made him think about asking the Lord to Know, do this is the childlike faith you know do it again and I didn't quite understand that until I had my own children and um my my two kids have speech delays they aren't a, they aren't able to articulate like uh, a child at their age usually could but they find ways to communicate the things that they care about and two things came into my head and remembering this I the first was, we used to have a baby monitor for Jonas, and I would watch this baby monitor because he he had real trouble sleeping. Nothing's changed, by the way. He still does. He wakes us up at these, these hours where you don't know if the Lord's with you, you know? It's just <laughs> <laughs> it's hours of doubt, I call them. And, uh... He really struggled as a baby, you know, he just really struggled to sleep. And so my, my wife, I, I could do nothing, and this is true of most men. You guys know this. Mom's got to show up or else this is going to go awry. And, and my wife would go up there, and she would sing to him. And I would listen to her sing to him on our monitor. And she'd go, you know, sing, 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 and he's his little eyes, and he would do this. He used to, like, rock himself to, to sleep. But when he wasn't quite ready to go to sleep yet, as soon as she'd stop singing, if he wasn't asleep, his eyes would come open, and he'd go, more. And then we brought my daughter home, and I would, you know, throw her around and I'd swing her. And she's she likes gymnastics, so she likes to be throwing around all the time. And and uh she goes, More peace. That's how she tells me she wants more. And I thought about how to rightfully celebrate ten years at Providence. There are sometimes in your Christian walk, and if you haven't gotten to this place yet, they do come where you're not sure that you have the right words to know what to ask God for because things are difficult, they're tough, you're struggling. It's been a long time since you've had something like what Spurgeon eloquently puts and lays out in his quotes, this experience of God's power and might, the gospel's power bearing fruit in your life. And so sometimes you're not even sure what to say. And with my children, God providentially gave me some kids that would teach me this because if I have a personal sentence that I don't ever stop talking. And sometimes when you don't have anything to say, all of us can say, More, please, or do it again. To look back at when you were saved and, like David said, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Or to think of it and just say, God, do that again. To think about restored marriages that you've seen, maybe it's even your own, and say, Do it again. Baptisms, do it again. Addictions being broken, do it again. More children adopted at our church, do it again, God. More children fostered at our church, do it again, God. People cared for when they're in the depths of suffering and loved and brought out of the depths. God, do it again. More, please. More, please. That's my prayer this morning the great fruits of the gospel that only come from that gospel seed that we could look to him this morning together and say, more, please. I want more of that, please. Because you might be thinking, well, that's a little bit presumptuous, isn't it? God would give us more. What if if he doesn't want that? Well, let me tell you what God's vision is for the world. He says that the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Whatever you define as more, it doesn't even touch God's vision for what more really is. So I want, to, I want to lay that before the Lord together. More, please. Let me pray. Father, for those under the sound of my voice that maybe perhaps they have yet to surrender their life to you, to trust you as their Savior, do it again God like you saved me. More, please. Families under the sound of my voice that are going through a rough time. They're just they're beset by their own sin. They're the enemy. God, do it again. More, please. I've seen you save so many marriages. Restore it. God, for providence in the next 10 years. More baptisms, please. More changed lives. More wonderful outreaches, more people cared for, people loved, more, please, we ask as your children. And we thank you that you're a father that delights in giving more. And so for whoever's under the sound of my voice, as we take of your supper, help us to have contented hearts in the meal that we take, but to also be obedient to your word like the persistent widow and say more, please. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.